you know, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for us. We'll get started. Yeah, dear Heavenly Father, um, thank you for just giving me this opportunity to speak your word, Lord. Pray that you use my mouth as your mouthpiece to really just get the point that you want to get across today, Lord. Pray that uh, you just give me the boldness to speak and, uh, yeah, for uh, me not to sweat so much. In his name I pray. Amen. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start off with uh, reading the passage that the message is associated with. If you guys can open to Mark chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 20. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him, and always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him, and he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains, so all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine that we may enter them. And that once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So those who fed the swine fled, and they told, told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what, what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who saw it told him how it happened to him, who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from the region. And he, went, and he got into the boat, who, had, who he had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim to Copolis all that Jesus had done for him, and all marveled. Okay. Before, before I start, though, I, I wanted to give some like, interesting facts about the book of Mark. It's not on here. Mark was actually the very first gospel written, and um, John and Luke use Mark both as a source for writing their own gospels. And... The, the title Mark is, doesn't denote the author of the book of Mark. Nobody knows who wrote the book of Mark. And the dating of the book of Mark is from 66 to 70 CE. And here's, the, here's a map. I, yeah, I didn't realize it was going to be so small. But if you see the lake right there, it says Gergisa, and there's Gadara and the Gerasenes. But the Gerasenes is right next to the Decapolis, and there's no lake there. So, so they're thinking that it was probably a mistranslation, and the more probable location is either Gigursa or Gadara. And Matthew uh, tries to fix this by naming, naming the, the demoniac the Gadara demoniac instead of the Gerasene demoniac. And this demoniac is also an allegory. This is what I learned from school. And um, an allegory is a story, poem, or picture that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning typically a moral or political one. 
So what was the hidden meaning in the story? Well, it was a protest of Rome over Roman rule over Israel. Uh, yeah, they, were, they weren't happy that Rome was ruling over Israel. And I have a little passage from book that I want to read to you guys that shows how this is an allegory. And this word, agile, is heard. And in this, in this most dramatic exorcism in the gospel, Jesus puts an end to the efforts by the demon, a.k.a. the powers to name him, by turning the tables. In verses 5 through 9, Jesus rests from his powerful demoniac cord, its name, Legion. Latinism, this term only had one meaning in Mark's social world, a division of Roman soldiers. Alerted by this clue, we, we discover that the rest of the story is filled with military imagery. The term used for herd, that word, agile, is, banned of, is inappropriate for pigs who do not travel in herds. Often, it was used to refer to a band of military recruits. Durrett also points out that the phrase he used, he dismissed them. I, honestly, like my, my Greek is so rusty, I don't even want to butcher it by reading it. But the first word is he dismissed them, and it connotes a military command. And the second word, the pigs charge into the lake, suggests troops rushing into battle. So this story is an allegory because the demoniac represents Israel. The demoniac represents Israel, and the legion, the legion of demons in him, is the legion of Romans, the Roman soldiers in, um, in, in the demoniac. And when Jesus frees the demoniac from the legion and throws them into the pigs, and the pigs run into the sea, do you guys remember the last, last uh, Israel oppressors that were thrown into the sea? The Egyptians, exactly. So this story is kind of like a... Um, a retelling of the story of the Exodus. And yeah, I thought that was very interesting and I really wanted to share that with you guys. And the second line is, since the fall of the city a few months earlier in 70 CE, Jerusalem had been occupied by the Roman 10th Legion, whose emblem was a pig. And that's only interesting if you believe that Mark was written in 70 CE. So what can we learn from the story of the demoniac? Well, first, before, before, I say, uh, before we learn the what we can learn, I want to define what is sin. You know, many of, many of us have this notion of sin as this legalistic term, right and wrong. Or what I learned from children's ministry, the, one, the definition that they give is anything that you think or do or, or say that displeases God. I'm not too sure I like that definition. Definition that I like, that I got from a book that I'm reading for classes, it says, the truth is that sin as defined in the original translation of the Bible, means to miss the mark. The mark in this case is the standard set by God and evidenced by Jesus in his life. So if you view sin in that definition, there's no doubt that we are all sinners. There's no doubt. So what are some of the consequences of sin according to Scripture? Oh yeah, the first point is sin leads us to desolation like the demoniac. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In this passage, Paul is just listing off some of the sins that peop the people were doing in those times. And he's saying that these people won't inherit the kingdom of God. Isaiah 59.2 says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, 
and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Wow, right? When you first hear this voice, it's kind of crazy. It says, you, you feel like it's saying that if you're sinning, that God will not hear your prayers. But I, I had a problem when I first read that because I didn't think that's what it meant. And I was driving, like going through commentary and I found, I found a commentary that I really agreed with. And it says, if our prayers are not answered and the salvation we wait for is not wrought for us, it is not because God is weary of hearing prayer, but it's because we are weary of praying. So I think the commentary is really saying that when we keep sinning, it's because we keep sinning that we, we cease to, to keep praying. It's not that God does not hear us because we sin, but rather because of our sin that we cease to pray. And um, it's, it's our desire to continue to pray is diminished from our continued sin. And that's the reason separation will come between you and the Lord. It's not because God doesn't listen to you because you're sinning. I, I believe God always listens to you, whether you're sinning or not. So what does sin do to you? Well, the two things it, makes you, it does to you is it makes you feel isolated and it makes you feel unworthy. It makes you feel isolated like the demoniac. In the, in the verse, the demoniac was living in the graveyard, cutting himself with stones, completely separated from the community. And by him being in the graveyard, I believe it symbolized he was living in uh, death. He was living in death. So his life had no meaning. It was, it was filled with just darkness, and he had no life. And that's what sin makes you do. It makes you feel isolated. Because before... Before I met Jesus and before when I was living this life of just sin and just doing things that just was for the glory of myself, I, I did feel isolated. I cut myself off from people. I um, didn't want to talk to people. I, even when I came to church, me and my brother, we would um, come to the family prayer time. We'd sit for family prayer time and then we'd leave. And my parents would think that we stayed the whole time for church, but... It was like most of the time it was never the case. And the reason I left as well is because I felt really dirty and shameful. I was like, why am I at church? I'm not worthy of God's love. I do, I do things in my life that just is full of like darkness. And I, yeah, I just felt so unworthy. So like, I just had no confidence. And you really start to disqualify yourself from God's love and even the love of the people closest to you. Like, at that time, I was um, just doing all these bad things, and people would try to, like, come talk to me or, you know, try to come get to know me, but I would all just push them aside, push them away. Why? Because I felt like I had nothing to give them. I felt like, why? Why would um, they want to talk to me anyway? I just felt like complete trash. And that's what sin does to you guys. It makes you feel completely isolated. It makes you feel unworthy. And it fills you with death. And it makes you feel just like you're not good enough. And there's, I have a word of caution, you know. Sorry, Pastor Ken. I mean, sorry, even to the best people in the world. We're all sinners. Pastor Ken's a sinner too. Sorry, Pastor Ken. <laughs> you know, we must resist the temptation to act as if we are, if we are righteous especially by leaning on our own good works because the original meaning of sin is to mean to miss the mark and none of us are at the standard of Jesus. So it's clear that we are all sinners. 1 John 8 through 10 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just 
and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. So this verse says, if we claim that we do not have sin, we're saying Jesus is a liar, and Jesus really has no place in our lives because basically we're perfect. We don't need Jesus. But that's not the case. We are not perfect, and we fall at the, at the standard set by God and evidenced by Jesus. So it's very clear that we need Jesus, and we need to accept that we are sinners. The good news is that's where Jesus comes in. And Jesus loves us and gives us new life he gave the demoniac. So when we repent of our sins and realize the need for Jesus, that's when the grace of uh, Jesus abounds and Jesus gives us this new life, this change, transformed life. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, before it says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Before we, before we had, now that we are crucified with Jesus, we have this new life and that Christ lives in us. And the life that we now live is we live by faith in the Son of God. And yeah, Jesus loves us so much, guys. He loved us first. And he lets us know that we are completely worthy of his love. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves you. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but, he, but will rejoice over you with singing. Yeah, man, my favorite part is, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves you. He will take great delight in you. Guys, God loves you so much. He takes delight in you guys. Like literally, when he's, when he's looking at you guys, he's smiling in delight. That's how much he loves us. And you know, the crazy thing about sin is um, only we can really disqualify ourselves from the love of God, of love of God, love of Jesus and his grace that he gives us. Like, like really, like only we can disqualify ourselves. God cannot disqualify you because no matter what you do or, do, or, um, or believe or if you love him or not, God will always love you regardless of that fact. And I got this line from the book I was reading. It says, God's love is a primary reality standing apart from space and time, circumstance and consequence, people and places. God's love is essential. Remember, he loved you first First in chronologically, chronology, and first in importance. Guys, God's love is not based on your own nature or ability or goodness. It's based on his. God is a God who, ab- who abides, so let's believe that. Oh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah, so I got a story and that illustrates this new life. During the end of 2006 and the early part of 2007, I was suffering from its... Oh, let me make a side note. This isn't my story. <laughs> yeah, during the end of 2006 and the early part of 2007, I was suffering from a terrible depression that led me to start thinking about suicide. Around that time, I was talking to some people on a few forums about my problems. One of those people helped me learn a little about Jesus. I found out about prayer on the internet which led me to read about Jesus. 
Eventually, I began to realize that even the person who had helped me learn some about Jesus couldn't help me. It seemed like the only one who could help me was the Lord himself. I felt like I couldn't trust people, so I turned to the Lord. Now I'm doing a lot better, and I'm no longer suicidal. I trust people more, and the Lord has changed me so much. Thanks to Jesus, I no longer want to die. If it wasn't for him, I do not think I would have made it, and that's not all he has done. He saved me so I could have everlasting life. And the verse she used, I think, really encapsulates how much God loves us. John 3, 16 through 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send the, world, the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So guys, Jesus was sent to the earth to condemn you guys, to call you guys out for being sinners, or to make you guys feel unworthy or you know, unloved or anything like that. But he came into this world to show you this grace, to give you this new life, and to really to save, save through him. So yeah, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Yeah, that's so amazing. And yeah, the, I want to talk about how the demoniac was given a new life. You know, when Jesus cast out the demons from the demoniac, the demoniac's reaction at the end really shows the goodness of the goodness of Jesus and the fullness of the life that Jesus gives. And when, he, and when Jesus got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. Guys, like the, the demoniac begged Jesus to be with him. But Jesus, unfor- yeah, unfortunately, said, no, go into the Decapolis and spread the good news that I've done for you. But guys, the demoniac experienced Jesus. And he realized that he never wanted to go back to the old life. He never wanted to, be, to go back into the, to the grave He's now been filled with life, and this new life, he knows that it's the best thing possible for him. And guys, this is the same with me, man. When, when I finally accepted Jesus into my life, I was just given this new identity, this new life. You know, I talked about it before, but this new identity, this new life that he's given me, is really giving me a purpose. Like, Eliza, you shared in the morning through your opening word how you've, been, how you've discovered your purpose but yeah, when I, when I got Jesus into my life, Jesus gave me a purpose into my life. Where, where before I was just wandering around, doing my own thing, I had no, no purpose. I was not motivated to do anything. But when Jesus came into my life, gave me this new life, oh man, I was transformed. So now that we have Jesus in our lives, what's next? To live that new life in reverence to the Lord, like the demoniac. You know, I'm going to have to read that pa- a passage. Yeah, this passage just blows my mind. Like, I can't, like, every time I read it, it's just crazy for me. It says, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. Guys, these are demons, the sworn enemies of Jesus. The total opposite of everything that Jesus represents, they see Jesus from afar and they have no choice but to run to him and to worship him. Why? Because Jesus is so holy, the Son of the Most High God, that these, these enemies, that they see Jesus, but they have no choice but to fall on their knees to Jesus. And 
Yeah, man, that just blows my mind. So what does reverence mean? Reverence is deep respect for someone or something. So how can we show reverence to the Lord? Well, one is by loving others, which we have gone over many times, and by living a life that shows thankfulness to the gift that Jesus gave us. Basically, what I'm trying to say is don't live a life that makes God's grace cheap. Don't abuse his grace, and don't make the sacrifice that he died on the cross. Don't make it cheap, man. Don't make it cheap. Romans 6, I believe, is a verse that truly shows why you should not abuse the grace of God. It says, what then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Okay, yeah. Better than I can explain what this verse means, I've also pulled up some commentary, and I think this commentary really is the best explanation to what this verse means. Shall we continue in sin? The verb tense right here. I went through the Greek Greek translation of the, the verse, and I found the verb tense. And that verb tense is a present active tense, which makes it clear that Paul's describing the practice of habitual sin in this first part of Romans 6. Paul writes about someone who remains in a lifestyle of sin, thinking that is acceptable so that grace may abound. Okay. So life of sin is unacceptable because our death to sin changes our relationship to sin. It says, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? For Paul, the idea that anyone might think to continue in sin so that grace may abound is unthinkable. Paul uses this phrase, certainly not, and certainly not is an incredibly strong phrase. It can also be translated as perish the thought or away with the notion. So how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Paul establishes an important principle. When we are born again, we have believed on Jesus for our salvation. Our relationship with sin is permanently changed. We have died to sin. Therefore, if we have died to sin, we should not live any longer in it. It simply isn't fitting to live any longer in something we have died to. So we who died to sin, at this point, Paul has much to explain about what exactly he means by died to sin. But the general point is clear. Christians have died to sin, and they should no longer live in it. Before we were dead in sin, now we are dead to sin. So guys, when you revere the Lord, you will not abuse his grace, but instead live under the authority of God. You know, before, we, before meeting Jesus, we lived our lives doing as we pleased, devoted to ourselves, doing, yeah, like doing anything that was for us. But now that we have Jesus in our lives, our lives are supposed to be different. We have a duty to live life loving others, and living a life that is pleasing to the Lord. So if I, guys, if I were to ask you guys all this one thing, if I were to ask you guys the difference between now, before you met Jesus, before, yeah, before, now and before you met Jesus, what would your answer be? Would it be that now that I go to church, and maybe I hang out with some church friends, but my life is pretty much exactly the same? 
And you know, if that's the case, I think you guys are totally missing the point. And this verse really, um, I think, shows what I mean by that. Jeez. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow that roads to life, that leads to life, and only a few find it. So guys, before we were living this narrow, I mean this wide life, and in this wide life, there's many, many um, distractions that can distract you. In this wide life, there's, you can go many, many places, but if we leave, lead a narrow life like that, and who's in, that, in the middle? Jesus. If you go through that narrow path, I think... That is the way you should live your life. Not, not with all these distractions, not as before, but when you have this new life, I think your, your path should become narrower with Jesus in the center of that path. And this line I just, I got from, um, yeah, this line I got from a, a book that I was reading, I think is really great. It says, God does not save us by grace so that we may live in disgrace. You know, so I want to conclude Okay, yeah. I want to conclude by asking you all this question. God came in human form to die for us. On the cross, to reestablish that connection that, that was lost when Adam ate the fruit. He gave us eternal life. So are we willing to sacrifice as well? To give up things in our lives that don't glorify Jesus? To lead a narrower life? And also, I want to uh, leave with this question to you guys. Do I live a life in a way that shows reverence to the Lord. So I want to close in prayer. Yeah, dear Heavenly Father, um, thank you for just giving me this opportunity to share your word today, Lord Jesus. I pray that uh, we, we can learn, we learn just even a little bit about the demoniac and how the demoniac can shape our lives, Lord. I pray that uh, through this message, we can apply that through our lives. And yeah, just live a life in complete reverence to you, Lord. I pray all these things in your name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I think this is my second or third time that I'm hearing uh, Pastor Eugene's message. And, and each time I, I feel like uh, Jesus is revealed. You know, the, you know how you distinguish good message? Uh, I think the question is, is it Jesus is speaking? Is Jesus revealed to us? Uh, is he magnified? And uh, I believe uh, because he has personal relationship with Jesus, Jesus Christ, he can really share what he has experienced. Uh, you know, we often, we have a head knowledge here, right? We're stuck with the head knowledge. But the knowledge has to transfer to our heart knowledge. And that heart has to transfer to our hand knowledge. And sometimes we stuck here on the head, but thank you, Eugene, uh, for sharing your heart for us. Yes, uh, we need Jesus, right? Every one of us needs Jesus. Uh, we join me in prayer. Uh, we're going to do the uh, communion today, so let's pray together.